Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 60 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray, and on this episode, we'll be chatting with former PGA Tour, now Champions Tour player, Grant Waite. Grant is not only the 1993 Kemper Open champion, but was the player standing right next to Tiger Woods when he hit that shot at the 2000 Canadian Open. Many of you will recall the 200-yard all-water carry six-iron out of a fairway bunker with everything on the line to beat Grant by a shot. If you haven't seen it, Google Tiger Woods' best shots. I guarantee it'll be part of the highlight reel. Grant will join us in just a moment. But first, my co-hosts, as always, from the US, blogger, critic, author, architect, and so much more, Jeff Shackelford. Jeff, it's been way too long since our last episode. I'll take the blame for that. Looking forward to Grant's yes. thoughts on a range of topics today. You were very quick to allow me to take the blame Yes, there, well, we want to make sure that Clates and I don't get the blame. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. So uh, looking forward to getting Grant's thoughts today. From here in Australia, player, architect, columnist, commentator on the game, Mike Clayton. Clates, I know you're a good friend of Grant's because it was you who teed up today's interview for us. Looking forward to hearing you grill your Kiwi friend on a range of topics, and good to have you on the show again today. Thank you, Rod. And finally, but most importantly, to our guest this week. As I mentioned in the opener, he's a one-time winner on the PGA Tour, claiming the Kemper Open in his rookie season of 1993. He went on to play the Tour full-time until 2004, and after finishing second at the 2014 Q School, has played 15 events on the Champions Tour this year, including a tie for third at the US Senior Open in June. Grant Waite, we appreciate you taking the time to chat. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No, it's uh, it's going to be fantastic. Now, I know you're a bit of a, a swing guru and you're right into the golf swing and the technicalities. We'll discuss all that shortly. But I've got to start with, and you probably get sick of being asked about this, but that shot of Tiger Woods, it turns up on all the highlight reels, etc. You were the man that he eventually uh, overcame by a single shot, that you were playing with him in that final round. What's your memory? Do you look back on that fondly as having had a front row seat to a bit of history or is it a little bit bitter as in, really, he shouldn't have been able to hit that shot? Well, probably a bit of both. You know, a lot of people still ask me about that. It's one of the few times that you actually finish second and people remember. <laughs> so uh, when you get finish second to a shot like that. But at that time of, uh, of Tiger's career, he could do no wrong. That was 2000, and he was busy winning everything that he entered, it seemed like. So um, that day I played as well as I could. Um, I shot. Uh, we were tied for the lead. I shot six under around uh, Glen Abbey. And lost by shot, he shot seven under. We both broke the tournament record, which I was 21 under, he was 22 under, and Sergio Garcia was third at 15 under. So we both played really well. I had the opportunity and it would have been a great victory for me, but unfortunately it didn't work out. And the shot itself, Grant, I mean, it always makes the highlight reel, but I suppose for a, for a tour professional, I, mean, I know it was all water carry and everything on the line, but the shot itself, a fairway bunker shot of that distance, was it as yes. special as people say or...? Well, it was. One, because of the situation. It's the last hole. Uh, I had hit a nice drive in the middle of the fairway, and I had five iron on the green. It was, I, had a, I had 223 to the hole, but I had 200 to carry the water on the line that I was going, which was the center of the green. If you went more to the right, I would have had to carry close to about 220. So I had five iron to the left, and I had about hit it on the green 30 feet, and I'm one back. And then he had driven it in the right bunker, now, he had to, um, not only over the bunker, he had to go over some trees that were right in front of him, then the water and the, and the flag on the right. And when he hit it, uh, my first instinct was always hit it in the water because it was at least 20 yards to the right of where I was anticipating the ball to go. <laughs> and, uh, and as it's in the air, I'm like, it's in the water. And the longer it was in the air, I'm like, no, it's not. It's actually going to carry. And it landed just on the on the green right by the flag and just onto the back edge of the green. So he was about 214. He hit six iron, which, uh, again, you know, he's hit some miraculous shots in his career. And that, that would be one of them, you know, for sure. So um, it, it was it was a great day for me. But, uh, you know, I keep telling people just one grain of sand between that club face and ball would have changed my life. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what do you recall about the atmosphere at the time, Graham? Because, of course, the Canadian Open was right between the U.S. and the Open Championship right after. He was the second player to win that Triple Crown, and it was the second wave of Tiger Mania after 97. What was the atmosphere like? What do you recall about being paired with him? At well, it, 
any tournament that he entered, and he's still to this day, um, it's a different, different atmosphere. There's people, for whatever reason, gravitate to come to watch him play. Uh, his style of play, the way that he would celebrate when he would, uh, down the stretch of tournaments, when he would do the, some of these miraculous shots with a fist pumping, running around, that most people, if you do that, if I've tried to do that, my heart rate gets so high, I, I, I can't hit a shot on the next hole. But he's able to do that, so it's very infectious. Uh, Arnold Palmer had the same kind of appeal. So back then it was there was a lot of people, a lot of atmosphere, a lot of people drawn to the game that weren't really golfers. So we'd you'd play with them and for example on the second tee that last day, uh there was a guy it was an almost ninety degrees, so it was very hot, and it was a guy in a full tiger outfit, you know, I mean like an actual tiger like the uh a mascot, you know, out there. And people yelling when you're playing, people who don't play golf. And so it was very electric and very exciting and it was just a, a, a great time to be competing. Because of course you played the tour pre Tiger as well. Was it a different place yeah. then? Well it it was. It was uh, it was just a different kind of group of people that were out playing golf. Now, when I first got on um, the PGA Tour, it was 1990, actually, was my first year. Um, you know, there was still, you know, Jack Nicholas would show up and play a few tournaments. I've got paired uh, with, I got played with him um, and guys, Lenny Watkins and Curtis Strange and those kind of guys that were, and then Greg Norman, of course. Uh, so it, it, Greg had a huge following that was the closest thing to Tiger. Now, back then in the late 80s, 90s, when Greg would play down in Australia, it was the same kind of atmosphere where Greg was number one in the world. He was kind of larger than life. Every time he showed up, he played great. It seemed like he had a chance to win down there. And so it really brought a lot of interest and focus to our sport. And that was the same thing with Tiger. And you could really see the difference between when he showed up uh, around 96 versus before that. It was uh, just, it's just a big difference. And it's still the needle today gets moved when he plays. Last The last tournament he played was in Wyndham. The, the ratings, TV ratings for that event, for just a regular tour event, was higher than, than most uh, of the all of the other tournaments on the PGA Tour except some of the majors. So people tune in to watch him. Um, and now, of course, they're tuning in for different reasons, you know, to see either if he can come back or it's a disaster again. 49,000 extra tickets, I think they printed, Shaq. Did they sell all of them? The, the Tiger effect is still in full flow, isn't it? It, it felt like it, and the energy difference watching on television was incredible. I mean, what a just an amazing thing to watch a golf tournament, a regular tour event, and feel that that energy. Of course, the venue also helped. It's a old Donald Ross, very intimate. But wow, it was it was. I knew a lot of people who just loved watching just because the energy was so good. This is going to sound ridiculous, Chuck. But when we come to talking about Tiger, I want to ask you about that and the Donald Ross course and having played that as though we haven't already talked about Tiger. Clates, Grant mentioned there the energy that Greg Norman used to bring to Australian tournaments. You, of course, played in many fields with uh, with Greg in both here and internationally. Did you feel that? Do you sense what Grant, Grant's talking about? A difference just in the feel of the whole tournament when when the shark teed up here in Australia? Well, of course, you can tell now that he's not there. I mean, even with Adam when he came back and won the Masters and hopefully Jason Day when he comes back to play, not this year, but hopefully next year, that, that I actually read a column about it yesterday. I, I think if Jordan Spieth, Jason Day and Roy McIlroy walked into a restaurant in Melbourne, Greg Norman would still, would still be way more recognisable than those three guys together. You know, so still Greg Norman is the kind of this iconic you know, sort of superstar in Australian golf. So when he played, it was amazing. I mean, there were incredible crowds when he played here. And then, of course, he hits the shots, doesn't he, Clates? Like Tiger, that he goes and hits the shots, and people say for years, oh, I was there when he hit that shot or this shot. Or... Yeah, he hit that. I don't know, wait, if there was an open at the Australian that John Morse won that, I think it was yep. in 1990, that Greg hit the, he drove it onto the downside of a bunker in the rough on the 18th hole at the Australian. And he, yep. and he needed a bird, and he pulled a three-wood out and hit this thing onto the green from, you know, it was like that shot. It was the same shot across the water, similar hole, really. Yes. It, it was a shot that, I mean, my question, I suppose, for you about that shot Tiger hit, which was the same as Greg's shot, I mean, probably no one else in the field would have tried it, let alone had the ability to pull it off. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, the first time I, I uh, played with Greg Norman, actually, was I um, – I turned professional at the end of 87 and I went down through the Australian tour school and managed to make it through. And, and early in 88, I played really well and I got into the Australian masters. And so the, I played good the first two days. And so the third day, 
Now, it's about my fifth tournament as a professional. Yeah. I got paired with Greg Norman the third day around <laughs> Huntingdale. Huntingdale, goodness me. Right. And so, but, you know, at the he was hitting some shots. And I remember I thought I was pretty good, right? I'm like, oh, I'm going to do great in, as a professional golfer. And I went there and I, I got paired with him. And he hit a couple of shots. And I'm, I'm just looking at my kid. He's like, I, I, I just, I can't do that. I don't know anybody that can do that. He took on the par five, and I don't know the course that great anymore, but it's like 14 or so. It's a par five. He hits a a driver, and he has to hit. He takes a driver out. was into the wind. He takes a driver out and hits it over the the edge of the trees with a driver off the fairway onto the green. And I'm just like, like, how, how do you do that? That's just not... It's not possible in my mind that that was actually a shot that you could conceive. Now... He, because of the power, the strength, speed that he had, he could do it. Now, Tiger Woods came along and took what Greg could do and was even a little faster. Now, some of that is because of equipment. He grew up at a different time. I, I get all that. But it's the same state of awe. When he first came out and played a couple of tournaments, I was on the tour in 96, and uh, he showed up at Milwaukee as his first event, and there's a par five, number five, I believe it was, or six, and he's hit driver five iron on the green, and you know I thought I was pretty long, and I'm hitting a, a driver, and I was in between a th- the three wooden utility club, and and hit it onto the front edge of the green. Most guys are laying up or hitting three woods. Now he's hitting a driver five iron, and at that point I'm like, this is a different animal because he's just was at it, it could do things people couldn't do, and and it, that's a very intimidating place for other players to be at, is that we witnessed all that, and so that intimidation factor was there. He could just simply do things that other players couldn't do. Now, as time goes by, the younger players saw that growing up, watched all that, developed their games around that, and now he's on the tour playing against guys that can do or can do what he can do, and that's why it's going to be difficult to be as dominant as he was, even if he gets his game back to where he was. That driver off the deck at 14, Huntingdale, Clates, that was Norman's signature shot every year in Australia, wasn't it? Hitting that second shot into the 14th. You'd like hook it around the trees or up over them with the persimmon wood and right. a ladder ball off the grass. Oh, yes, and I actually, sorry, Clates, I, I forgot to mention that you're talking about with a wooden driver and a steel yeah. shaft, yeah. And, I, and I just couldn't believe what I was watching. Yeah, and was, I was, I was, I was, of course, it was a McGregor driver, but Greg had drivers with almost no loft on it too. Now, this thing yes. probably had seven degrees loft on it. Right. So, you know, it wasn't like a ten and a half degree tailor made with a, you know, it was a straight face thing with a, with, with, with yes. probably an, an E, sorry, an X, two or three hundred shaft in it. You know, yeah. it was, of course, well, if you talk about equipment, when Woods came here in 90. Six at the end of '96 played the Masters at Huntingdale. From memory, he hit three wood two iron onto that green. Equipment had already changed to that point by then. Yes, and that was sort of the talking point of the, the whole thing, which really upset Robert Allenby. It it, it strikes me we we <laughs> uh, we um we've chatted there about sort of personalities in the game and whatnot. Shaq, this is one of the things I wanted to talk to about to you about about today before we come to Grant and his relationship with Chris Como, which is interesting, and that'll be more Tiger. But the day Spieth. McElroy, the new big three. Are you buying into it, Shaq? Have we have we finally found Tiger's replacement with three great players? No, no. I I, I wish we could have a little more time to take a breath. I mean, look, look at look what's happened now. The attention span is so short that that we have people actually discussing Jason Day as the Player of the Year when we just had Jordan Spieth do something that that puts him in in the most elite company imaginable in our game. With with Woods and Nicholas and Hogan as as being in a Grand Slam uh, discussion and having one of the greatest years in the history of of the majors, and people are already moving on. I mean, look at Rory. Rory even joked about it about how it's about a six month window now. He's old news. I mean, this it's just it's uh, you know this desire to have a big five and a big three, and it's just sort of a marketing driven thing. It's it's uh, people who have money at stake trying to push these things and. I don't like it because it it um, it's it's just puts these people in a certain kind of position, and then there's an expectation, and when they don't deliver, I mean, golf's a, such a fickle game. Jason Day is, seems to be fairly injury prone. You just don't know, you know. And 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 the same thing with Ricky Fowler. Mike, he's got two wins. You know, we're acting like he's uh, a Hall of Famer uh, when he wins the players. It was a great win, but it but let's calm down. You know, let's think. Think big, big scale here. Think long term. Is is there not some legitimacy legitimacy to the argument, Shaq, that these three, Spieth, Day, and McElroy, have separated themselves somewhat from the next tier, which is unbelievably good as well, but that they have 
formed a a little club, just a slight level above perhaps the rest. It's a, I, I think that's actually the case. It feels sure, the first sure. time that these guys are actually, you know, and you can only compare it to that Nicholas Palmer player thing, this idea of a, a big three. Those three certainly feel like they've got it more so than you. Ricky Fowler never felt like he actually had it, did he? I know he won the players and it was a brilliant win, but it was yeah. a tour pro ripping off six birdies in eight holes, which can happen even if they're not playing particularly or something clicks. And, and so, but, but this performance of Jason Day and Spieth and Matt, the sustained top level. I mean, Day had a chance yeah. to win almost all the majors no except question. the Masters this year too. So um, I think there's some – what's your take on all of that, Clates? Do you bother with any of that sort of stuff? Do you, do you think it's important for the game, the publicity that it generates and the people getting people talking about it? Well, it's always good to have players who've got great rivalries. I mean, we almost – now, we've barely had a Mickelson-Woods rivalry. In terms of, you know, what's yeah, Nicholas at Turnbury and Pebble Beach and Palmer and Nicholas at Cherry Hills and Augusta and, you know, do we ever have a, you know, you know we probably have one or two great Mickelson-Woods battles, but, you know, we're I'm desperate for this. I mean, I mean, everyone yearns for the Watson-Nicholas-Turnbury thing, you know, the, the two best players playing incredible golf and, you know, the, whole, the, the you know, making history, really. So we, we we need these guys to go against each other, and in a sense, Day and Spieth did that at the PGA. But it needs to be sustained, and you know, Jeff says you know, it needs to go on as Palmer and Nicholson played for a decade or more. Yeah. It feels and Rod, yeah. Rod, there's one other element. I mean, we I, we we to, to those uh, partaking in the drinking game out there, we we certainly have to give them <laughs> their uh, their moment. I, I just also think I guess I get very. I have a hard time getting excited about the potential for these things because I think that uh, the equipment just brings the players together so much more, and it's going to be. Very, and that I think what they've done this year, <clears throat> when you think of the equipment and the way it does uh, raise the the bar for uh, or the level of play for certain people uh, from who are who are great golfers, uh, but but maybe makes them a little better than they are. What they've done this year is incredible uh, because they have separated themselves in this game with this kind of technology. But can, over the long term, I think that's just going to be very difficult for them to to do that. Plus, the attention span is just shorter when when the amount of money is what it is. I I think career length is going to be a lot of shorter. But I'd love to hear what Grant thinks of all yeah. this. Uh, us us having our little discussion here. You've gone over your 140 <laughs> characters there, Jeff, so you need to pop it down. Grant, what is your take there? Because, of course, and the equipment argument is obviously legitimate. and Nobody would deny that the equipment has changed the way the game is played. However, to win golf tournaments, the non-equipment characteristics required are still the same, are they not? And I hate to use words like courage and those sorts of things, but the ability to deal with that pressure at that level, doesn't matter what sort of club you've got in your hand, um, those are the characteristics that really win golf tournaments, are they not? And your thoughts on the Spieth-McElroy day? Well, well, first off, yeah, I, I agree with you on the, as far as winning golf tournaments, the, everyone's got the same equipment. So it's, it's still, you're going to separate yourselves in other ways. Now, so um, clearly equipment has allowed people to learn to play the game differently. So as a kid, and I see this when I was coaching, was that I get these kids showing up on the driver, and they are swinging absolutely as fast as they can on every shot. And they're, and they're neurologically wiring themselves up for speed. So the game has changed because of that. It is now a power game. And that's what, what Jordan Spieth is doing makes it more even more interesting, is that he's doing it, even though he's, you know, in comparatively to yesteryear, he's long, but into the guys like Dustin Johnson and Brooks Koepka uh, and these guys, he's, he's not long. He's kind of a medium hitter. And he's, he's thriving in against these guys even though he doesn't have that length. So he's clearly demonstrating that, okay, equipment is one thing, but what it takes to win at that uh, elite level is more than just this equipment. You have to be able to still make the right decisions, make the right play, control your emotions, make putts when you need them, and be lucky. And he did all that. Now, as far as a rivalry for, for between those three, I think that's just a marketing tool, and it's an interesting talking point. And I think it's needed. I think we need to have these discussions because it keeps the focus on the game. But is it real? No, it's not real. There's too many Dustin Johnsons out there and young guys like Justin Thomas that are that are all set to make the leap. And, and it, it's a rivalry, you could argue, somewhat this year. But Rory wasn't a factor because of the injury at the British Open. And he wasn't a factor in the U.S. Open until late. And the Masters, same thing. So it really wasn't really a rivalry there other than the fact that number one versus number two as Jordan was going up and, and Jason Day's late uh, year in heroics. Now, 
But I think what Clayton's saying is important is that, okay, the potential is there and a couple other players, but it needs to be sustained over time to be a true rivalry. But at the moment, it's a good talking point that we can start to see the level of talent that's in this game that is it's just awesome. Probably as good as any time in the game because when Tiger came along, he separated himself. And at one point, he was so far number one, he was double the points of the number two guy, which was Phil Mickelson. So that it, it was so far in front that it really was no rivalry. It was just Tiger Woods driving the tour. But we have the potential to have five, six, seven golfers, maybe even more, that are going to be right there that we can be able to talk about all the time and watch play. It at, at, and they're all playing this incredible power game that is so interesting to watch. Well, that's funny you should say that. I was going to ask you about that, Grant. Is it a more interesting spectacle, the modern power game of golf, do you feel, than the game that saw... You stand with your jaw agape watching Greg Norman hit a Persimmon wood with a steel shaft off the grass up over some trees to the 14th at Huntingdale. Well, what's the saying is that uh, the chicks dig the long ball, but, <laughs> right? So. I think that's the thing, and that's true. There, there is something awesome to watch a guy stand there and be able to hit a ball that far and then dry, get, walk down there, and you know, and the aberration would be Jason Day on the ninth hole, the final round of the PGA, where he drove at 320 or 340 in the middle of the fairway, and now he's got a wedge. And he has to have a now completely different attitude and a swing and a finesse shot and hit it close. Now, he missed that shot, but that's what these golfers, golfers are facing. There's incredible speed and power, and then you've got to control that with a finesse. So what's attractive is when you sit there and watch a ball go 340 and then guy hit a 60-yard finesse shot over a bunker and spin it and stop. Now, that's just a, an incredible differential in skill sets there because you have to have both i mean otherwise it would be long drivers would be winning on the pga turn they're not doing it it's it's got it's still that's what's so fascinating about the game i think to amateur golfers is incredible power and then the incredible finesse and so i think it is a spectacle and i think it's great to watch now the usga have done the right thing they recognize they made an error back in the day with how they were doing testing, but now there's limits on this. So how far the ball is going now and how, fa how fast these guys can swing is all done by the athlete from this point forward. And so I think that I, I think it's a, it's a great thing to watch. And well, so do you, is your take that we've kind of hit the limit? Because of course, if you take this argument to its logical conclusion, and people keep hitting the ball further and further and further. There is no alternative but to make golf courses longer. The most expensive possible option for the game as a whole is yep. to increase the actual distances that need to be covered. And that clearly doesn't make any sense, does it? So as a professional, well, as a golfer, um, is there a... Does, is this something that needs a solution, or have we got the solution now? Have we peaked now, do you think? Now, now okay, so we're talking about two different things here, right? So we've got these golf courses that some of them have been made obsolete, some great golf courses, and it's a shame. And, and Clates has got a whole career based on renovating courses to up now, which is great. So the whole thing about this stuff is that, okay, these golf courses that we're building, we have to keep in mind that not everyone's Jason Day. The average golfer is not Jason Day. He's not Jordan Spieth. So it has to be playable with sets of tees and people need to understand just move forward and play a, a, a front tee you develop more tees which is more expense but you need those tees in order for people to play now i also think in the future to keep people playing it's it's not only the difficulty of the course but it's the time that it takes to play is a very big factor so we, we need to design golf courses where uh, Gary Play was talking about this, where there's 12, where there's an opportunity to play 12 holes. So you, you, you go out and the sixth six hole comes somewhere near the, the um, clubhouse and then you've got three holes that are joined to that for that front nine and then you can go over and you can play six 12-hole golf courses somehow. We got, we've got to have those options because if, if a lot of people come home on the weekend, they want to go play golf, look at their wife or husband and say, I'm going to go play golf, and they're gone for eight hours, and it's just not going to work. So I think to grow the game, those are the things we look at. But the, the championship golf courses and the PGA Tour and the, the majors are still going to be on these great golf courses that have been renovated to some degree to accommodate how far these guys are playing. Now, I will say this. Colonial, every year on the PGA Tour, is one of the most difficult courses as far as scoring to relative to par is concerned, and it's the shortest course we play. If you have firm greens and smaller greens and you, t and you have the pins on the corners, that will stop any PGA Tour player. It just will. 
because it's very hard to get close to the hole. So if we want to look at championship golf, we can make it, instead of trying to make them longer, we can just make greens firmer and the fairways be a little bit more um, premium on hitting it into the fairway because of those firm greens. Jeff, I suppose one of the things Grant's touched on there, and it is the reality, and it always has been the reality, that professional golf and amateur golf have had a fair golf with a U between them. I mean, the, the two games mm-hmm. have always been different. But they seem more different in this day and age. And I think Jack Nicholas has touched on this before where, you know, he, I think he's, his famous story, he said if he went to a, a golf club, played against the club champion, he played off the very back tees and the club champion played off one forward, they could play a roughly similar game and have a match. But that can't happen anymore. Um, that gap yeah. is wider, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, and I, I saw that this year at the old course. Looking back, we did not go back to those ridiculous tees on the other golf courses and play those, and I looked at a few of them and just laughed. I just thought, wow, that's that's another world there. And then, then whist, going to Whistling Straits and seeing that and seeing a golf course that uh, is now, I don't want to say it's outdated, but but, but they, they probably would like to add a few tees if they have another PGA there, it's seventy five hundred yards at least, and plays longer, and it's a beast. It's a monster. Oh, it's a beast! It's just incredibly hard, and Not they a lot just of fun did... by the look of it either. It must be said. No, no, you would not play it. No, you'd be miserable. It's it's not. It's it's so. If people knew how hard it was, and so to see the way they play it is uh, rather shocking. It's impressive, but uh, but but yet you talk to people, uh, and, and they're not as impressed by it as. As they used to be, and I and I wonder what is at the core of that. And I don't know if that's that's television sort of deadens some of this, or uh, it is the people not impressed because they know it's technology uh, driving some of those three hundred eighty six yard numbers. Or I'm not sure what it is, but it is fascinating that people have. I had somebody bend my ear just uh, Wednesday about. Uh, they've just been finding it flat. Uh, they don't. They don't. They're not compelled by it. Uh, and I'm not sure. It could be a combination of things. Personality surely is something to do with it, Jack. We talked about Norman and Woods, and more so even than Nicholas Bobby Palmer. You know, the, no, the but, but that's characters the thing. That, that drive the well, game, right. But I think that Spieth is uh, is captivating in a certain way, and Rory's interesting, and Day. Is now that people know his story and and uh, know how hard he works, I think they're really uh, Im- impressed by him and, and intrigued by him and and ad- admire him. But but there is there is something that's holding people back from from getting uh, overly excited. It could just be that they have fatigue from from all the the uh, talk of who's we've got another you know big three or there's here come more gray one. Maybe people just don't like it when it's sort of. Uh, uh, stuff down their their throat, and and they're told to to like these people because they're we're telling you they're stars. Or Clates, is it that um, those stories that Jeff's touched on with Jordan and and with Jason and and McElroy really don't touch people beyond golf? Norman always brought people from outside of golf. He was an interesting character, and Tiger the same. I'm not sure we see that with McElroy, Spieth, yeah, or Day. Well, it takes more than a year to transcend the game, really. I mean, Greg took. I mean, Greg transcended the game here, and Tiger obviously in America, and I suppose Nicholas did. I'm, I'm sure Nicholas did, but you know, it's a it's a rare rare player who can transcend the game and drag people who don't play golf to watch them play. And you know, I suppose John McEnroe did it in tennis, and you know, so it's even Daly did but, it in golf, didn't he? I suppose <laughs> still does to a certain extent. Wow, almost. A, well, I mean, uh, there's a point that Clayton just said that I think that's interesting. When you start naming those guys, you know, from Tiger Woods to uh, Arnold Palmer to uh, Greg Norman, there's a real personality that went with them that helps them transcend the game. So they they become an icon in sport, not just in their in their game. They're very recognizable characters. You know, John Daly, wherever he goes, still is recognizable in and out of the game. You know, um, a lot of the the guys are great golfers, but they're not, you know, overt personalities. And, you know, there's Dustin Johnson's story is an interesting story for people, too. And I think there's a part of them that can relate to, you know, the the frailties of the human nature and then some of the things that happen to them. So that's why John Daly and even Dustin Johnson has got some popularities. People can relate to that. So, you know, I, I still think that personality plays a large part of it. Uh, and Jordan is just a very, very good person. And he's not going to be the guy that's, you know, that's going to be the center, of, what craves the center of attention. He's got 
very grounded with his sister and his family life. So he's not a large personality, but he's going to have to go the route of Nicholas, where he just is day in and day out, year after year, a great player. And that, that respect goes beyond the game and uh, how he conducts his life. Golf at the very top level, Grant, where you play it, doesn't really lend itself to the big personality, does it? I mean, the guy who can maintain, not flat, but can minimise the ups and downs in their own emotions is the guy who generally, over the course of a season and a career, perform better. So the game doesn't naturally lend itself to the big character, does it? No, it doesn't. And, you know, like I was saying before, I tried to say, okay, I'll watch Tiger. I'm like, he seems to get himself so pumped up after he he does something that's just incredible and goes to the next team, drives at 350 in the middle of the fairway. I'm like, well, I'm going to start doing that. And I got to the next team. I, I just I couldn't hit the fairway. My heart rate's too high. And it's just not in me to be that kind of charismatic when I'm making all of these putts or if I ever do and hit these incredible shots. So it, it, that's a natural, that's an instinct that the guy has or, you, you know, has in him. So, and most people, if you have those ups, the downs are just as big. And unfortunately, in this game, there's going to be a lot of kind of adversity in almost every round you play. Almost every round. And and you go up and down so much, it's very hard to have a consistent performance over the course of time because you just get emotionally spent. So I think that's why um, the guys who are, are able to do it uh, are so attractive to the people to watch because they're very expressive and people like that. They want to see emotion. They want to see realness in their players rather than a, a robot kind of look. You, you lose, quote-unquote, far more often than you win in this game. Even even the truly <laughs> special ones are only, I think, what's Woods at, 18% or something? I think yeah. Is his winning percentage, which would be extraordinary in any other sport to dominate yeah. an 18% winning percentage, yeah. of course. That's interesting. You're clearly a great observer of the game, Grant, and you, you mentioned to us before we started how um, you did some coaching after you finished on the PGA Tour in 2004, and then you, you've done quite a bit of coaching and whatnot. You, I don't mean this in a nice way. You're a bit of a swing geek, aren't you? Yes, I am. I've got a, I'm a curious by nature. Um, my brain, unfortunately, doesn't shut off. I want, if someone tells me something, I want to know why. And if the answer doesn't satisfy me, I'll go research myself. So I got, I've got that tendency in me, and it's unfortunately I don't think it's great for me as a player. But you know, I, I just curious brain, and I, and I, I just have trouble shutting that off at times. So, um, and I, I think this has some benefits to it too. You know, uh, um, if you're if you're smart enough, you can work through what's actually valid and what's not, uh, versus like old wives' tale, which is a lot in golf. Um, you can kind of wade through all that information and, and be beneficial. And I think um, for me personally, I enjoy that. I just enjoy wanting to know why. It would seem a, a large step, and I think most of us who play the game, you know, if we had the choice to be a PGA Tour player at some point in our life, it's something everybody would jump at. To go from that to standing on a range and coaching, I assume, uh, amateurs of whatever level, yep. what's that yep. like? What's that? What's that? Is that? Do you stand there and find yourself something? I shouldn't be here. I should be playing the tour, or is it? Boy, I can bring some wonderful knowledge from my time on the tour to this person. Well, okay. So when whenever I coached both, uh, I had five players on the PGA tour at different times that I was working with, and then I also had like saying they're just regular amateurs and and good amateurs and guy people that were coming to schools to learn, and I, I would say that the amateur golfers were the most appreciative of all golfers that I dealt with, the regular player, when you'd give them information that made sense to them. Because they were like, oh, okay, so that's how I do I wondered how, and they're just so appreciative and they loved it. There was a fulfillment that came from that, that you actually helped someone understand the game. And I, I liked that. And uh, the, the tour players... They, they're more not really interested in what's going on. They just want to know, just tell me what I need to do right now so I can play well. And it's good to see them play well, but it's not quite as fulfilling at times because <laughs> you're feeling like you're not really, they're not, you're not really helping them educate them. So I, I, I enjoyed it, but there, you know, it was like any profession, you know, there's part of you, once you've played on the tour or you've competed that level, you, you, there's certainly a longing to keep doing it. And it's hard to unplug the set and not play. And so when the opportunity for the uh, Champions Tour came along, I'm like, you know, I, I, there's a part of me that would be uh, look back with regret that I at least didn't try. So that's why I went back to it. And how have you enjoyed it being back to it? Because I think you didn't play competitively for some years. So 
Yes. Like learning all over again inside. They're, they're, there's some pretty good players out there on that Champions Tour, Grant. Yeah, okay. So one of the things, yeah, for sure, right? So there is a, and that's what I was saying to you earlier when you mentioned about the, the outside of the, the, the clubs and, and all this technology. In order to play well and still at the highest level, there's, a, there's the, the other side of it. And when you haven't played for six years, I went through the tour school, finished second, and got on. I'm like, okay, I've played against these guys before, and I've beaten them before, and now I'm the youngest, one of the youngest guys out there. I'm just going to go out there and play great, and I'm going to win. Well, I, I quickly would realize that that wasn't true after two tournaments, because these guys can really play, and I'd been away, and the competitive skills weren't there. There were some holes in my game, especially the way that the Champions Tour is set up. Because I, I hit the ball very far. I'm uh, my speed and all that is comparable to a PGA Tour player, not not Dustin Johnson's. But I'm going to be average to slightly faster than average on the PGA Tour, and then go on the Champions Tour, and I'm the longest or one of the longest, maybe one or two on, on there. So there was there was lots and lots of strategy because the courses we play are much shorter. So you know, I'm standing there thinking I'm taking one of my biggest strengths was driver out of my hands. There was just some holes I couldn't hit it. So I'm hitting a lot of you know utility clubs and three woods and irons off some of the tees. And now it became a wedge game. And if when I'm my wedge game, I wasn't as sharp as it needed to be. And I'm playing against Hale Irwin, whose short wedge game is phenomenal. I'm going to lose. So I've had to kind of go back and retool how I see the champions tour and also to redevelop that competitive instinct of when to be aggressive, when to play safe. You know, handling the situation, um, controlling my nerves, you know, all of these things that go on with championship golf. And uh, I've had moments where I've played very good, but my, my performance has been so volatile because at times I have a handle on it and times I don't. The value of a shot, a single shot at that level, can't be overstated, can it? it, it yeah, it just cannot. One shot can change your life, you know. Extraordinary sort of stuff. Yeah. You, of course, played tour golf for a long time, and you're kind of the opposite to Grand Arch. I can't imagine you trying to teach anyone. I know that that's not your, your bent anyway, the golf swing, but I can't imagine you getting any satisfaction out of trying to other people to teach the game. And, you still, and you're not interested in the, the competitive aspect anymore either, is it? it? It's interesting, the different personalities that make up the game, isn't it? Well, I like to compete. There's just nothing to compete in anymore. Um, I like playing with kids and helping kids with the game, but as opposed to teaching. I mean, I, you know, I, mean, I, I don't get teaching at all because I've been around enough good teachers to know how difficult it is. And I, I'm not even close to being able to teach the game properly. I can, you know, I know when someone's got a bad grip and I can maybe help them with a grip or, but it, it's, it's not an easy thing to teach people and, and to teach them things in the right sequence. I think Grant would understand probably, but, you know, you can see someone's overall swing and you can see what's right and wrong with it. But to, to change it in the right sequence is the trick. Otherwise, you just completely screw them up. Mm. So does that make sense, Grant, to you? Or? Yeah, well, for sure. Uh, Absolutely. And here's one of the things that I – when I do, often do presentations when I was teaching, I did a couple of presentations to PGA sections. And so I would put up, okay, uh, three swings that, that people would always like. A guy like Ben Hogan, a Nick Faldo, and an Adam Scott. And I say, okay, clearly the instructional industry say, look, these guys are great players. Look at their swings, and here's why. Their swings are so good. And then I'll quickly put up guys like Miller Barber, Lee Trevino, and Jim Furyk. And I'm going now, okay, none of these swings anyone would teach, right? But these guys hit the ball every bit as good as those guys. Now, what we don't need to do is understand Nick Faldo and Adam Scott's swing. What we do need to do is understand how is Jim Furyk and Lee Trevino such good ball strikers with swings that don't reflect anything that these other guys are doing. So really in the instructional industry, what we need to understand is relationships as to why that one works and why does Adam Scott's work and why does Lee Trevino's work and why does this – and when we start throwing out a look – you start looking at what Clates is talking about. There is a, a relationship and a sequencing that's going on that allows that guy to have a shot pattern or the variability shot pattern that allows him to play at a high level. Because you're going to have variability, but the fact is their variability is smaller and their swings are not orthodox. So you've got to teach based on what the player is doing, the order of what they're going to do, and you cannot disrupt certain relationships that allows them to be good players to begin with or how you're going to get people to change certain relationships that aren't very good. It's a real challenge because, remember, people want to come and take a lesson from you because they want to play better. 
you know, for sure. And so if you start kind of messing with the swings and they play worse, that's, that's not why they're there. And so it's a real challenge. And there's a psychological part that you've got to work with the player at all levels as well. And it, it's, it's an awesome responsibility because people want to play better golf. And it's not easy. This plugs into something uh, very real, doesn't it, for the whole growth of the game, mm. is that people are more inclined to go and play golf when their golf is improving or they feel like they're, they're playing well. There's nothing worse than playing bad golf and nothing puts people off the game quicker than playing bad golf. And so instruction generally plays a pretty important role in that as people come to the game. If the teaching is better, we should retain more people. Yeah, it's just always been such a difficult thing, and and Grant probably knows this. And giving uh, talks to 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 groups, it's there's so many different views on how to teach the golf swing and what are the actual fundamentals, and and uh, and I don't know how you get around that. I don't know how you reach a truce of sorts on what are the the, the fundamentals to teach beginners and how to get people just able to advance the ball in a way they can enjoy themselves, and if, or even if that's necessary. And of course, Grant, the thing about teaching and coaching, no matter what the subject happens to be, is essentially what you're talking about is communication, isn't it? As the teacher or coach, you've got the information, but it has to make sense to the person you're passing it on to, and that's a two-way street. Well, it is, and remember, everybody learns differently, So, um, and that's another challenge, for example. So in that communication, you have to understand the, the guy that's standing or the person standing in front of you. You know, what what's, what can they relate to? What are the words that you have to choose to help to kind of get your ideas to resonate with that person? That's as much as anything. Now, if I go in there and, like I said, if I teach Charles Howe and Aaron Badley the same way, that it's just not going to work. They're two totally different people of how they process things. The language you use, the speed you talk, the the wor- uh, also the uh, how, mu- how much information or conceptual ideas that you give them are totally, totally different, even though you could be teaching the same thing. And the art of teaching isn't the information. Um, I think it's more about, because the reason why I say it's not the information, because if you look at the Hall of Fame, there's guys from Jack Nicholas, whose left arm, for example, at the top was very high, and you've got Ben Hogan's that was very low or flatter, both fantastic golfers. So who's right? I, I don't know. But the communication based on what that person is doing in front of you and how they learn and how they process in coaching is what's really important. To, that person wants a, a good experience as well as improve golf. They want to feel good. And as a coach, you have to reach that. And I think sometimes the instructional industry has gotten so one-dimensional and forcing people to try and swing a certain way, and there are some systems out there that teach that, that it, it just is a square peg in a round hole sometimes. And I, and I think people get burnt out and they gave up. And um, where it's a great game that you're kind of going to be constantly learning. If the attitude you're going to be constantly learning every day and every time you play, and if you can get 1% better over the next couple of weeks and then 1% better and 1% better, and if you go faster, great. But if you keep getting a little bit better each time, you know, a year from now, you're going to be 30% better than you were today. And that's, that's an important attitude to bring to the game. And I think instruction missed that. So I guess, Grant, one of the one of the interesting things about teaching and your background in coaching is that you sort of came across uh, Chris Como, best known as Tigers coach, obviously, uh, before he started working with Tigers. So how did that relationship develop? So about um, three years ago, there was a study that was being done um, to do with ground reaction force. And uh, there was a lot of, they used a, a couple swing models. And one of those swing models was a stack and tilt model. And at the time, um, I was coaching, so I was um, very familiar with the golf biomechanist boards, which are forums, which you go on and you learn about golf biomechanics. And I'm trying to incorporate and learn that to, to, uh, to bring into my coaching from experience of playing and what, my, what I've learned from the people that have helped me, like Mac O'Grady and so forth. So I, as I was busy going through that, they became, I saw the study. So I started kind of following it. And there was a lot of conjecture going back and forth about, you know, weight staying to the left like the stack and tilt guys say that it should versus weight shifting over to the right side. So um, Chris Como was one of the guys involved. He was at Texas Women's University um, in just in basically in Dallas, and uh, they were doing the study. And he tried to do a stack and tilt swing. And, of course, <laughs> the ground reaction force vectors were, weren't um, really reflective of what the stack and tilt guys were saying. So they were saying, well, he can't really do the swing correctly so as i'm following it i contacted chris i go chris you know a lot of these guys really like my swing and they use it as a model i don't do what they say but i'll come and hit 
So he goes, would love you to, because uh, again, I was used, I'm on this Stack and Tilt DVD. They asked me to, to be part of it. And I said, sure, you, I'll, I'll just make my swing and you take what you like and what you don't like. So I go there and we do this and we do the, um, the measurements of my swing using ground direction force, as well as a number of other um, 3D components to the measurement of the swing. And out, they spitted out all this data. And of course, it was completely in conflict with what Second Tilt was saying about the weight shift. And so Chris and I became very good friends. And I really became a mediator between letting, the, as the data was coming out, the explanation of it from a technical standpoint into layman's terms of what actually goes on with a lot of like center of mass, center of pressure, ground reaction, force vectors, moment arms, and all these things are biomechanical terms that a lot of people don't know. Um, and really don't want to know, and they didn't, shouldn't really know if you're playing the game, but as a coach, it's kind of helpful to know what's going on. So I was kind of the mediator, and it became quite a big deal. Okay. And so, so Chris and I became friends, and through that, I learned a lot from him about guy, uh, biomechanics. Now, what he did was he, he coached for about 16 years, um, doing various coaching, just regular coaching. He wasn't a, uh, a biomechanist in any way. And then um, he's in Dallas, and he met Dr. Uh, Kwan, who is the, the guy that was running at Texas Women University, the guy with biomechanical lab. So he convinced him to, to run through the course. It would help him become a bit of instructor. Now, Chris is, is curious by nature and an extremely smart guy with a very high IQ. So he was, okay, let me, let me do this. It'd be interesting. And through that, he's learned a lot and incorporate that into his coaching. Now, I've learned a lot of things from him. Um, to do with that and to – but I'm not a uh, bi uh, golf biomechanist in any way. I just kind of learned a lot of things as I went asking uh, pertinent questions based on the players that I was helping. So when the opportunity came along for um, – I had some players come to me and I was already very busy. I asked Chris. I said, Chris, would you like to help coaching tour players? Now, his background is 16 years of coaching – before he did the golf biomechanist. Now, so there's a lot of conjecture out there about the fact that he's a the scientist and a researcher and all this stuff, which is part of who he is, but it's not who he is. His background is coaching first. So he's, when you spend a lot of years in the trenches coaching, uh, the average player and all the way up to tour level players, you learn a lot about how to coach, what to say, how to phrase it based on the person in front of you. For example, you may have a very technical guy in front of you. He wants to know like a Charles Howe. He wants to know all of the information that you have. And then you may have a guy like Aaron Badley who doesn't want to know any of it. He just wants kind of what's pertinent to him, tell him what to do, and he'll, he'll try and incorporate it in his game. So Chris has got experience with that. Now, uh, Chris, so I brought him out, and him and I, we worked together with a couple of players. Um, so we spoke almost every night for two years, just talking about various things, what we're doing with the players, running the program we're going to do, designing practice routines for them, um, how to do, you know, after the round, talking to the players, and various things that we did. Then um, the opportunity came for me then was to start trying to, am I going to go to the Champions Tour or not? And I decided to do that. Now, right about that time, He's friends with Nota Begay, who'd come and uh, taken a couple of lessons and heard about him or talked to him a few times. So he introduced him to Tiger. And um, at the end of the year, I went through the qualifying school. And the, when, as soon as I finished the qualifying school, which I believe was on the Friday, the next day they announced that Chris Como was now um, the, well, I'm not sure what the word they use, swing consultant. consultant I think that's what the, yeah. yeah, consultant. Yeah, consultant. Yeah, yeah. yeah consultant. Uh, for Tiger Woods because I had now moved on to going to try and play the Champions Tour this year. So that was at the end of last year. Yeah, obviously, Chris is an intriguing character. And I suppose, Grant, it begs the question, I mean, you know, obviously there's loads and loads of different theories about the golf thing. Everybody's got an opinion about Tiger and what he should be doing and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What's been your take on his work with Chris Como and the Tiger Woods that we're seeing now? He's still important to the game, isn't he? It's important that we – he's important well, to the game. He's extremely important because we're talking about a big three. And if we get Tiger Woods playing good, I mean, now there's Tiger Woods and then there's three other guys, you know. <laughs> exactly. So, right. So he's that, he's that important. And Chris Como, I believe, is the guy that's going to help Tiger get back to a level where he is um, on the tour as one of the best players. I'm not sure he can ever get back to where he was simply because of age and injuries. However, he can still be a factor like he was. And, uh, in in the at the biggest stage now, 
the, the thing that we've got going on here is people have to remember that, okay, so Tiger Woods as a kid had his swing that he had as a kid. Then he decided he loved Greg Norman and he was his idol, so he went to go work with Butch Harmon. So then he had Butch Harmon swing as a kid. Then he went on to the tour and then he won the Masters, I want to change my swing. So we had Butch Harmon swing version two. Then he went from there, he went over to uh, Hank Haney for who knows what the reasons were. But anyway, he goes to Hank Haney. So now he has Hank Haney's fingerprints all over him because each instructor wants their fingerprints over him because then they can say that they taught Tiger Woods. Then when that ended, he goes to Sean Foley. So now he's got the swing as a kid, Butch Harmon one, Butch Harmon two. He's got Hank Haney one. Then he goes over to Sean Foley. Now he's got Sean Foley changing all these things. Now there's a motor pattern that's going inside your head that says, golf swing and now it, there's all these competing patterns and there's certain relationships that some instructor wants versus the other and it gets confusing to the brain so when you stand there and you visualize, visualize a draw your brain goes well what in the hell which swing am I going to use here well it wants to use one but you've got a part of this other guy now you're trying to do this one and to the point where you're now no longer hitting the shots that you seem quite easy and then you have this horrible horrible feeling when you stand on the tee and I've been there where you don't know what to do and you don't know where the ball's going to go. And I don't care if you're Tiger Woods to Jack Nicklaus to the average golfer, that is a horrible place to be because you just seems like there's no way out because you don't have a solution. Now, what Chris Como is trying to do with Tiger is say, okay, here are the relationships you had when you were younger that really worked. Here are the things that you've done. And over time, we can document how you've became it became more and more difficult to hit the shots that you wanted, and here's the relationships that change. Now, it seems like a simple thing, and, and, and it really it's kind of unfair for analysts at times to say, well, all he's got to do is swing like he did when he was younger, or all he's got to do is this. But when you're a coach, you've got to stand on the driving range, and you've got to implement these things with competing patterns fighting you, and then you've got to go on the golf course and do it, and then you've got to do it in a tournament with the whole world expecting you to do that in one month. It's just not, not fair. So I think the biggest thing that we have to understand is Chris Como is a very, very smart guy, and Tiger is a very, very talented guy. They will get it right because Ty, uh, Chris is not going to teach a method. He's going to try and help Tiger do what's comfortable but understand those relationships. And that timetable is just not as fast as people want because this is a difficult game, and he's got a lot of neural patterns he's got to come, overcome in his brain. Mm. And he will do it. It's just never going to be as fast as people want. Just quickly, what was your take on Tiger at Wyndham? Did you see things there from both the player and the instructor's point of view that were encouraging? We've seen these little flashes from oh, Tiger yeah. this year, but Wyndham seemed to be a little bit different to me. Yes, and it was, couldn't have been – it was for me. It, it was sustained. Even though he had the lead after two rounds, he didn't win the tournament, he was still a factor. And if it wasn't for a triple bogey on Sunday, we don't know. He was right there with, a, with an opportunity. Now, it – Knowing Tiger like I have, and he was a member of the same golf course I was from 96 through 2000, uh, whatever it was, 2006 or 80 left, Isleworth down in Isleworth. And I've seen him, and that, that will leave a mark on him at the end that he didn't win that tournament. So he is going to, I know he's going to work really hard. He's going to come out next year uh, with some now some time away from competitive golf, all the feedback he's got implement whatever he needs to be and he will be ready to go because he that that bothered him for sure that he didn't win yeah but, but Grant, well no i i actually i took a lot of heat for saying it was a positive week but i my takeaway and this is what i'm curious is a little bit different in that i thought it was a great week for him going into this break because he actually got into contention he got through saturday and even though sunday was a little bit rough he now goes on a break having had a positive experience in being in contention yes. as opposed to missing the cut at the PGA and going on a break. But you're, you're saying that you feel like knowing him that it'll actually be more the, – the, the end product will be more of the motivation of not having uh, finished the, the thing off. Yes, and knowing that he can do it. See, it, oh, it's because it, yeah. it, he, he knew that he could do it. And at, in the, all through this year, he was – I have the feeling and – talking to a couple of people is he was hoping that this stuff kind of kicks in but i think at Wyndham and from talking with chris he knows he can do it now he goes i, I got it I, I get what i'm doing now and he feels comfortable he's going to have enough time off and watch these guys play at the playoffs as motivation for him and he you, he will be ready to go i believe what, 
What did you make of him doing so well on a golf course he didn't know? Because that's something we've talked about that that we uh, on this show and elsewhere. Just to get out and play somewhere different, and then he goes and he, he plays an old style Ross course really well. Uh, uh, why do you think he played well on one he didn't know? It's because he didn't know where all the trouble was, or just because it was it, it stimulated something different in him? Yeah, or well, I think it's <laughs> I, I think it stimulated something different in him for sure, and I think also there's probably like no scar tissue over the last couple of years, which is also a very big factor. But I still think that his game is, keeps getting a little bit better each time he plays. And certainly after the debacle at the, at the majors, you know, there's, there's a real urgency. He goes there he, and he competes, he plays well, and now there's a sense of knowingness that what he's doing is it's in there. And I think that's as important for him as anything because you know, his swing is his swing. And he's going to keep working and getting that better. It's that, that sense that you're just comfortable and you know this and that I'm Tiger Woods and I can do this. Is, that's as, as nurturing of that is as much as important as anything else. And I think he got that at Wyndham. And that's why I'm so, uh, I buy him. If he was a stock, I'd be buying him. Clay, it's just on those, this might be a bit hippie of me. I think this is a, a, a concept I've put to you before. I'm not sure you convinced by it. But is there not at some at some level... Woods is kind of the, the Beethoven of his time or the Mozart of his, his chosen profession. He took to Kingston Heath like a duck to water in 2009. It was a thing of beauty to watch him play that course, the two of Is there something in that that Sedgefield was just a, the right fit for him innately in some way, that a, a great golf course brings out better golf in him, or am I too hippie and off the track with that? Well, he's played – well, I don't know. I'm He's played great golf on good courses and bad courses. I mean, my question for Grant would be, should he play more? I mean, should he come down and play a couple of events in Australia and rather than sitting on the range for the next four months, actually come out and compete a bit more? Or? Yes, 100%. It, it, the competitive um, part of, this, of his uh, return to championship golf is vital. He has to be doing that. And I don't know what his schedule is, but if I'm Tiger Woods, you know, he's gone through the worst that you could possibly go through. And then there's nothing worse that could happen to him, you know, in this year. So why not play? Your game's getting better. Put yourself on the competitive stage and learn to compete again with what you have. And you develop that I am Tiger Woods, like the commercial when he first came out. That's, what, that's an important part of it. And you're only going to get that from playing competitive golf. Unfortunately, you're not Tiger Woods, Grant, because otherwise no. you, wouldn't be on, you wouldn't be on state of the game. It's a selfish reason on my part. It'd be great to have you if you were, but I, I don't think Tiger's ever reached out to us and said he'd like to be a guest, which is a shame. Tiger, the invitation is still open, of course, should you want to put your side of the argument. Enough about Tiger for the moment. Clates okay. mentioned to us, Grant, uh, in fact, I think you mentioned to us just before we came on air, you mentioned two words that always intrigue me, Mac O'Grady. What's been yes. your relationship with Mac O'Grady? He's an intriguing character, is he not? <laughs> intriguing. He's been described a lot of things, and intriguing isn't one of the nicer ones. So, <laughs> so I'll say that. But he, um, okay. So I met him in um, end of 1994. At the time, he was coaching uh, Seve Ballesteros and uh, VJ Singh and Steve Alkington. And uh, for whatever reason, he saw me on a driving range, uh, one of the PJ Tour events when Seve was there, and he came over and he started talking to me. And he gave me his card, and he said, "I think I could really help you." He goes, you're close, he goes, but you need to know something. Now, <laughs> yeah, you, nasty, like I said, isn't it to say that to right, a tour player? Mac, you're yeah. close. <laughs> it's, it's, especially to someone like me, he was like, well, how am I close? Why am I close? How do you know I'm close, right? So these, and he was like, mm, just call me. Um, I'm going to Europe with Seve. Call me when you get back. Uh, and I get back in some two months. And, of course, that drove me insane. And when he came back, I called him and developed a relationship now at the time with, with Mac. Now, at the time... Uh, Mac was really a um, on the front edge of you trying to use whatever science was available to try to uh, explain the game in in terms of how you swing, not on how you play, but on how you would swing a golf club and what makes sense and what doesn't, and what's real and what's not. So I spent two years with him. Now the next year, that was the end of '94, and I uh, in '95 I led the tour in ball striking, number one in, in front of everyone, and it was I. And then in 96, I was third. So I played some great golf with him. And I've got, I could go on for hours of stories that are just some of the craziest stories and things that you think that you would be making up uh, with Mac. He's, he's the most passionate, um, uh, generous, um, supportive guy that you could meet. 
and then within less than a millisecond can turn to be the sometimes the cruelest, meanest guy that you can be around. Uh, there's a personality, uh, there's his personality. And so because of that, he's very standoffish with people. He's, uh, and so it's very hard for him to nurture or develop relationships. So it's intriguing because he's so gifted with intelligence and he's smart and had a lot to offer the game. But he also isolated himself uh, and didn't have personal relationships, which then he suffered from because people didn't take him seriously, think he's a quack, think he's just all of these um, names that they want to give him. And he has now has a cult following. But it, to me, I, 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 no matter whether you like the guy or not, and he, you, you, it's a shame that he is, his contributions, that he wouldn't allow that his contributions as research to be to be peer-reviewed, put them out, let people see them, let, let them pull it apart, tell them why it's good, why it's not, all of these things. Uh, he just wouldn't subject himself to that. And it's a shame because any, any great works uh, in science is never finished, right? It's, you put it out there and it's a hypothesis. And if it's proved true, it becomes a theory. And in which case then people can then pull it apart. And they, and, but your contribution isn't diminished because you didn't get it all right at that time. It's just it's it's not because that's the whole point of it is that we continue to learn and he just wouldn't do that. But his um, but I, I will say it was some of the most fun times and it was a sad ending. But it was you know I was with him for two and a half years, which I think is almost a record. An extraordinary striker of the ball himself. Did he not teach himself to play left-handed? Good enough to yes to get on the tour, if I recall. Was he? Did he get that good? Well, okay, so he would play on, they used to have these Monday shootouts or, or Tuesday shootouts. And so he would play, and I've got videotape of him playing, for example, in L.A. He's playing left-handed. Now, in that shootout, you've got Tom Kite, um, you've, got, you've got all the players at the time, Lenny Watkins, I think there was uh, Scott Simpson, and all these guys that were winning tournaments. And he's playing left-handed, and he wins the shootout. Now, he was good enough to be a really, really good amateur like a U.S. amateur potentially could win that. He was that good, and his his ball striking, and his. But most impressive about that was that his swing left hand and right hand was almost identical, and he taught himself the same fundamentals. The idea was that he would teach himself left handed the same things that he would teach himself right handed, but use his left handed to test things before he'd implement on his right hand golf swing. And it was fun. I I, I played with him where he's. He'll hit a three-iron right-handed and then turn around and pull a three-iron left-handed and hit the same shot with a three-iron off the ground. It's just it's mind-boggling, that, and the skill and the athletic ability that he had. But again, you know, there's more to golf than that, obviously. But it, it, incredible, incredible, interesting, scary person um, that's ever been involved with golf. I'll say it that way. I went with intriguing. Yeah. You went with scary, but you obviously yeah. you know him, and I I don't. Yeah. So actually, you said there was hours worth of uh, fun stories you could tell. Pick your favourite one, and we might end on that because. Oh, okay. So, okay. So, in, uh, this, it, I'll try and make this kind of quick, but it's an inter- fun story or an interesting story. So, in in nineteen, uh, his last year on the PGA Tour was nineteen eighty nine, and I know that because my first year was nineteen. I was really wanting to get out there so I could watch Mac O'Grady because I was a big fan of his, and. Um, so anyway, he, he lost his tour card, but in 89, he was playing at Hartford, uh, which he determined he had won, and um, he was out hitting balls uh, on the driving range after his uh, practice round, and there was a guy following him that um, was yelling out, Mac, you're the greatest, you've got the greatest swing, and now Mike, Mac hates that. He's very much into respect. You have to be quiet and humble. You don't say anything. Uh, very much likes the Japanese culture for that. So anyway, so he calls security over, and there's three guys standing there. One guy yelling at has them all kicked out. So we go ahead to 1996, seven years later, and I'm on the driving range at Thunderbird Country Club, and here and there's a a kid had called up from from Massachusetts and wanted to get a lesson from Mac. And uh, so the, the head pro Don Callahan at the time came out and said, Mac, this guy had called, wanted to come out and take a lesson. And he goes, sure, who is he? And he said his name. I didn't know him. Mac didn't know him. So anyway, this guy, young guy comes out onto the driving range, and he gets about 20 yards away, and Mac goes, I know this guy. And I'm like, well, I don't. So he takes one look at him, and he says, stop. He goes, you're friends with the guy that was yelling all that stuff out me at, at Hartford. And this is seven <laughs> years ago, and he saw him for, oh. for 
15 seconds. And then the guy goes, oh, I didn't know him. I, just, I don't know that guy. I was just standing next to him. He goes, I don't know if you know him or not. You could be lying to me. He goes, kid, he goes, I'm not helping you. I'm not helping you. So the poor kid is almost in tears as he kind of, and the story goes along because he's trying to talk Mac into it. Mac wouldn't have anything of it. So eventually Mac said to him, he goes, nope, out. So the kid turns around, starts to walk away. And then he goes, hey, uh, I'll tell you one thing, though, kid. And the kid turns around. And he thinks he's going to get the secret to golf. And he says, all those other teachers, they're all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so not oh. only am I not going to help you, but you, they're all wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's Shades of Colin Montgomery about that, isn't there? Seven years later, recognizing the face oh. that had offended you at some point. That's, uh... Gosh, the poor kid, it's like it was a knife had gone right through his heart. Oh, oh that's terrible. Weird. Not growing the game, but a fabulous story, no doubt about it. Grant, it has been. Hey, oh, sorry, yes. Rod, no, I, while we have Grant, I just have to tell a, a story about him, and in, in, that's the polar opposite of this. Uh, of quickly, I'll make it short. But when I was an aspiring player, Grant played the uh, LA Open a few times, and uh, the first year that I was standing behind him on the range, you know, the range is, was at the time very close to the the ropes. And uh, I was videotaping his swing, and I thought for sure he was a Mac uh, disciple. He was not at the time yet, uh, as I later learned, and he just told us. Uh, and uh, he eventually just kind of turned around and started chatting with me. And then uh, the next year, I was doing the same thing, and uh, he invited me out to to walk with him during one of the practice rounds, which is, uh, as a young player, I was in college, uh, you know, that was... That that was just it meant the world to me. Of course, something like that would never go on on the PGA Tour. Now they're no. they're also uh, surrounded by by entourages and caddies, and caddies are their jobs are to to block people from 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 their man. And uh, but it was just uh, and then of course I also did the, tried to do the same thing, videotaping Jody Reed swing, and and he he pretty much did almost what Mac did. Only he didn't ask for me to be removed, but he he pretty much wanted <laughs> me to destroy the tapes and. Um, and leave him alone. And then, of course, he started talking to me and, and ended up wanting to watch his swing on the on videos. So uh, he, he wasn't all there. But anyway, my point was Grant was an absolute, uh, uh, just a total gentleman, and, and it meant so much to uh, to me as an inspiring player and uh, to to have that those conversations and and uh, to learn a little bit about the game. So. Well, I've made, made, the truth be told is that when you're videotaping my swing at the time, I was probably hoping you had the secret as to how I could hit it better. So, <laughs> hey, you want to walk around with me? Oh, Tell me what you think. Yeah, show me that. Show me that tape. Grant, your obviously curious mind, I'm sure, has worked against you at times in the game of golf, but it's been a massive positive for us here on the State of the Game. It's been wonderful to chat to you and hear some of your stories. And we must get you back at some point. I really enjoy your analysis of, uh, of play. I know we only talked mostly about Tyre today and Greg Norman, but you've obviously got plenty to offer in that way. Thank you for for chatting to us and uh, look forward to having you back on the show at some point. Well, thanks for having me. You guys are fun and anytime. Yeah. Just let me know. We've, Thank you, Grant. We've been called a lot of things. I'm not sure that fun's ever been one no. of either. So. <laughs> <laughs> Another first. Make sure you save the tape. Man. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, don't start that again. Thank you, Shaq, for taking some time. It's been great to catch up. been far too long. We won't leave it so long next time. Correct. Thank you. And Clates, um, I can't blame you for the delay. So, yes, I, I apologise to you as well for it being so long. It's been great to get your yeah. insights, and thanks for organising, Grant. Yeah. That was beautiful. Thanks, Grant. That was great. Yeah, no, good, good. Thanks. And that wraps it up for State of the Game, episode 60. And they said we wouldn't last. I know I said that at 40, but they still said we wouldn't last. Episode 60 was fantastic. Looking forward to your company for episode 61 on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.